I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right, Seth, we are back. Back at it. Back at it, baby. We've had some vacations since we last talked, uh, other stuff kind of going on in our lives. But our hope here, I mean, this is sort of the hope, is like we're going to get back at it. I've been getting some questions from people like, hey, are you guys still recording some stuff? Or did you give up? Or what happened? And the answer has been, no, we are not still recording stuff, but we are going to be recording stuff soon. But we have not given up. And so, uh, yeah, here we are. And um, this is really kind of part three uh, of who knows how many parts, but where we're talking about your dissertation and some of that stuff. So if you missed the last couple episodes, you might want to go back and check some of that out. Um, but kind of to, you know, for those of you who might be newer as well, um, let's just talk a little bit about that, that thing you said a moment ago that we're here to critique the hell out of culture. So uh, just a reminder, what, what do we mean by that? Well, there's two ways we can think about heaven and hell. There's the more literal sense, as in heaven is the place where God is, and hell is the place where God is not, or his blessed presence is not there. And so to be with the Lord is to be in heaven and to be separated from the Lord is to be in hell. So that's like the more literal renderings. The metaphorical way that we're talking about it is that things can be heavenly or hellish and heavenly things are things that are in line with or congruent with the way that God wants them to be. Uh, you know, even like a heavenly scoop of ice cream feels like this foretaste of how things ought to be in the new creation when God makes all things new. I've had a few of those this summer. A few of those. Yeah. I've had a few of those this week. <laughs> had a few of those yesterday. And then things that are hellish would be the opposite of that. Those things that are um, curses more than they are blessings. Things that are out of line with God's creational order and God's creational norms. And things that uh, take away from the value of creation and harm image bearers and damage creation. And so when we're talking about critiquing the hell and culture, there's both a, it's preeminently a, a metaphor for those aspects of our culture, which we are a part of that uh, fly in the face of, or actively rebel against the way they ought to be. If, if they're actually submitting to Jesus as Lord. Yeah. And I always think about how we're much more embedded in the culture than we'd like to admit, right? We'd like to imagine the culture is always out there and it's those people and it's that way of thinking and it's that thing. And yet, um, you know, a lot of times we're, we're part of that too. And most of the time we talk about culture, we use it in exclusively negative terms and it's someone else. Right. But we're trying to say that culture is a mixed bag. There's a lot of great things that culture promotes and there's a lot of bad things culture promotes. And we as the church are at least in the United States still a relatively powerful cultural force, maybe not as powerful as many would want us to be. Mm -hmm. but we have a lot of a lot of say, a lot of fingerprints on Western society, and so a lot of what's bad in Western culture we are implicated by. Sure, and basically all that's good in Western culture we are implicated by. And we like that part better. Yeah, we like that part. Yeah. yeah, all the best things in the West were basically ripped off from the scriptures, and all the worst things in the West were basically ripped off from the church misapplying the scriptures. So we're, we're a huge part of what's going on. Yeah. So as we said, this is kind of part three of looking at your dissertation. This is, I think for a lot of people, I, I think the last few episodes as folks have listened, they've got, man, that's really interesting. That's made me think a lot uh, about kind of transhumanism and technology and kind of where is this all headed? I feel like this is kind of the conversation that a lot of folks I know have kind of been waiting for in that it's going to, I think really touch into like starting to really get more into like, where's the rubber meet the road on these things? So I just want to read the title of your dissertation, which you finally sent to me. 
and I, I was so to eager you. to get it that I have not read it yet. You, so. you were the first person I sent it to. Wow! Just so you know, that's incredible. Once they put the big sticker on it that said "published, verified, blue okay. check mark, whatever it is called," I sent <laughs> it to you. So. Well, thank you, and I, I really will read it, <laughs> but I haven't yet. But here's the title. So the title is "Digitization and Neo Docetism: Generation Z's Understanding of Their Bodies." in light of expanding digital existences. And when people have asked me about that, the way I've kind of shorthand tried to describe what you worked on is saying, you know, we live in this reality where uh, digital existences is everywhere, especially through smartphone technology and social media, which we'll talk more about today. And that it has and is reshaping the way that the next generation views themselves and understands who they are, understands their bodies, that sort of thing. So that's what we're really digging into here today. Yeah, it, the whole concept of... So smart, so social media is kind of the, the centerpiece of this, but things like FaceTime and Zoom and the radio, this all kind of began with the radio. There is this um, you know, theologian philosopher who back in 1985 was talking about how electricity eliminated the problem of space once and for all. Mm. And he's writing that mostly talking about television and the radio. This is Neil Postman who wrote the book Amusing Ourselves to Death, which would be a phenomenal thing for people who want to understand how political discourse has even changed the last 20 something. Yeah. I was remember, years. I remember the cover of that book. I never read the book, but I feel like I understood it by the cover. I don't know who the artist of the cover was. Yeah. It's all about how, um, all rational discourse eventually became some form of show business yeah. because now people even experience the news and politics through the lens of entertainment. Yeah. And that's all thanks to television. But even like this idea that you know, back in the day, you didn't really know what people looked like. And now we're a hypervisual culture. Even last night in a more kind of like semi heart wrenching way, mm. my I was sitting there with my son and he said, see Honeygram, which is the name that my mother picked for herself. Mm. Grandma, mm. instead of grandma, she picked Honeygram, which is something we could discuss at a later <laughs> date. So my, my son goes, see Honeygram. And he's how old? He's one and a half. Okay. And he goes, see Honeygram. So we, we, uh, so I get up my phone and I FaceTime Honeygram. Is that is that her name in your phone? Uh, no, because no. it's, it's mom. It's mom yeah. right now. Yeah, keep it that way, please. Yeah, I can't. If, <laughs> if I start calling my mother Honeygram, you can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some different problems. You know, dock it from my pay or whatever on the podcast. So the so we FaceTime Honeygram, and he sees her. Um, she answers the phone. He sees her, and he goes. He looks at the phone and says. Honeygram, hold me. Oh, wow. Hmm. Honeygram, hold me. Hold me. And he, like, leans towards the phone, like, tries yeah, to, like, to be picked up. tries to lurch towards her. And then the benefit of it was it really pulled on my mom's heartstrings and she offered to babysit this weekend. So that was, <laughs> that was the, uh, that was not the intended goal, but that was the outcome. But just like that, yeah, one and a half year old kind of going, oh, Honeygram, can you hold me? And no, I'm in. Tempe, you're in Gilbert. Maybe, maybe we could see you on Friday, and I could hold you. You know, and right, sure. but that kind of elimination of space, and even just the developmental concept, kind of floating to mm. the top. Yeah, in my son. But it, it made me think about like a Saturday Night Live skit back in 2009. Uh, this was like Andy Samberg style thing. There's just okay. there's a song called "Threw It on the Ground" that made me think about this. Okay, I actually put this in my dissertation because I thought it was funny. Oh wow! Uh, I quote Lady Gaga, Kendrick Lamar, and Saturday Night Live in my dissertation. There you go. So. I bet there's not a ton of 
those quotations in Covenant Seminary <laughs> dissertations, yeah, yeah. but maybe. Yeah, I had other ones that um, they asked me to take out. So, <laughs> but it's a, it's a skit where it's about throwing it on the ground, and some guy walks up to a guy, and the phone's ringing, and he says, he hands the guy the phone and says, it's your mom. And the guy picks up the phone and says, this is not my mom, this is a cell phone, and he slams it on the <laughs> ground. And then it goes into, like, the skit about, so I threw it on the ground. And yeah. so, but that whole idea of, like, personhood and place in relationship mm. to digital technology. Sure. Like it's basically all funny. And as an adult, you go, ha ha. But there's like this reality that even like the philosopher Seneca in the year, like 65 has this quote that he was talking, he was talking about more in the context of being present where you are, but he said to be everywhere is to be nowhere. Mm. And the erasure of space of technology. So he was talking more about like, get your head out of the clouds and be present. Okay. But now with, digital technologies, social media, you can, and I see this all the time, even on vacation where you're like on the beach in like the paradise of paradise moments. Sure. And there's people sitting on their phone, scrolling through TikTok and Instagram being somewhere else. Yeah. When they're like, what are other people doing? And there's this preoccupation with mm. being somewhere else. And so your, your mind is somewhere else, but your body is somewhere Mm-hmm. And it creates that ongoing division between body and mind, body and spirit. That's not the way that God created it to be. And so uh, really a lot of this is that social media and digital technology and the internet are causing us and creating the opportunities for us to be more disconnected from our bodily presence than ever before. Yeah, it seems like that's one of the interesting kind of debates and conversations related to social media is is social media making us more connected or less connected? Yes. And I think you could say, yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say, is it, it probably in certain ways more connected, right? There's more ability to communicate with more people and to be more in touch with more folks. I think as a pastor, I mean, one of the one of the gifts, at times it's a frustration, but it's also a gift, is the ability to be much more aware of what people in our church are thinking, what they're doing, uh, where when they're on vacation kind of just having I don't mean in some sort of you know uh voyeuristic way but just to go like hey oh here's what's going on in people's lives here's what they really think here's where they really are sometimes that's really discouraging um but but also it's like oh this helps me feel real connected but what you're actually kind of arguing is like the long-term effect of this seems to be less social media more anti-social media yeah, it ends up functioning to create distance between the people that are your most proximate to. I think one of the one of the effects or one of the ways that we're supposed to be affected by even the parable of the Good Samaritan is is what um, ethicists call the proximity principle, mm. meaning that which you're proximate to, like the degree to which you're that you're proximate, is the degree to which you are um, implicated by or responsible for that what you're close to, you know, in the parable of good Samaritan, there's people walking right next to the guy who's hurting. Sure. And it's not like every person in the world should have done something about that guy. It's the people who are right next to that guy should have done something for that guy. Right. So that's, that's the effect is they were approximate and they didn't take responsibility. And it's similar with our relationships is this whole idea of like, yeah, we're more connected than ever, but you're less connected to your spouse. You're not less connected to your, um, people who are like God, God has placed close to you. And so you end up substituting distance, distant relationships for close relationships. Yeah. And it's actually a way of avoiding proximity because it's actually easier to be vulnerable online because you don't have to, it's, all, it's easier to be mean and it's easier to be vulnerable online because you don't have to do the eye contact thing. You don't mm-hmm. have to 
um, maintain like presence. You don't, there's like less risk involved because sure. you can say something vulnerable or say something mean and you don't have to see the f- f- wince on the face. You don't have to deal with the follow-up question. Sure. You can respond on your own time. Whereas like a live conversation is kind of scarier and riskier. Uh, so part of like relationship is risk yeah. is, is this willingness that I'm going to say this thing to you, whether it's like, I'm going to say something positive to you or I'm going to say something negative to you. And I have to like be in the moment waiting for your reaction, either rejecting me, withdrawing from me, um, leaning in, leaning out. Mm-hmm. And so the risk involved is part of what makes the relationship legitimate. And you're actually, the elimination of that risk actually kind of handicaps future ability to connect and be present in relationships. Yeah. And so uh, some of the therapists I talked to, even in my dissertation process, talked about how social anxiety is skyrocketing because mm-hmm. the socialization process has been digitized. Well, and this is what I want to talk about, because I feel like so much of what we've said, you know, anybody who's given any sort of thought about technology and social media kind of goes, well, yeah, I kind of know. That's sort of what's part of it. And, you know, and but, but, but what I think is so interesting about what you've been working on is the specific effects of these dynamics on the development of Gen Z, right? So this is, it's not like just, oh, what's the dynamic of social media in general, but how is social media shaping, uh, reshaping, forming the next generation, forming our kids, our grandkids, um, you know, the the future adults and leaders of our country and our church and our, you know, everything. The first one is, I would say, it's really changed the concept of privacy in mm-hmm. a, an interesting way. And, and by privacy, I mean, there's no like private, non-private space now and the different different environments for different things has changed like if like when you were a kid going to school or even when I was a kid going to school I would go to school and I would be able to communicate with my friends and teachers at school I would not be able to text my parents all day long right there's a there's a real break Mm -hmm. and then I would leave my friends at school and I would go home Mm -hmm. and I would be able to communicate with my parents and not my friends at school sure whereas now you end up having this everyone has access to everyone all the time thing. Mm -hmm. And so even like parents ability to monitor, how are you doing and checking in and you go home and it's friends checking in. And obviously if you're in like hyper destructive environments, that might be generally helpful, but what it creates is this inability to work through the social systems that you're placed in. And so it inhibits your capacity to be present in different types of relationships because, Mm. uh, you're no longer just Seth the person and then Seth the child, but you're kind of always in this, everyone has access to me all the time. And so my social processes are interrupt always. Hmm. So even when I'm talking to my parents, there's a ding and I think about my friends and I'm taking somewhere else or I'm at home at school and my phone vibrates and it's my mom and she's asking me about, and so this, uh, so this lady, her name was, um, Hera Morano wrote a book called nation of wimps. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting title. Yeah, I liked the book before I read it, just based on the title. So she was she was the head of Psychology Today for a little while. She's a um, psychologist, and she was talking about the developmental effects of overparenting and how technology has facilitated this hyper overparenting. Mm. Because letting, especially as kids are going through adolescence, this idea of you have to go and work through that. Yeah. Without me coaching you through it every step of the way. Obviously, I'm not talking about four year olds. I'm talking about fourteen sure. year olds. Yep. But this kind of obsessive um, monitoring that can happen uh, actually erodes autonomy, individuation, and the capacity for um, teens to 
work through that process of differentiating from their parents because mm-hmm. their parents are with them all the time in a way that's probably non-profitable and un- unhelpful. And yeah, I, I um, part of what comes to mind when you say that is I, I know guys, uh, men and women who grew up in a pastor's home, and they will talk about how they felt like they were in a fishbowl. Everyone could see them all the time. You know, part of it was people were just paying attention to them more at church or something. But they also get used in a lot of stories and illustrations and those sorts of things. And it was always a weird experience of feeling like, man, every, all these people I don't know know me. Yeah. And what struck me now is how everybody has that experience. Yes. Right? You know, you, adults will go up to any kid and be like, oh, so how was Disneyland? And the kid's going like, how did you know I was in Disneyland? Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, your parents posted a picture of it. Like, yeah, what was your favorite ride? And in and in, in that sense of like, yeah, I can I can see that kind of boundary going away. Everyone lives in this fishbowl. Um, there's probably a, a small percentage of, you know, strange and probably unhealthy people that would really like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, but but well, it, it seems like it would be just dis- disruptive. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things, even in starting this research process, we you know, we had a kid and there's like this desire to post pictures of him everywhere. Cause I thought he looked really good, especially after he was like three months old, you know, cause that first three months there's kind of, <laughs> he is a cute kid. He was very cute after three months old. Yeah. <laughs> he got a little meat on the bones. And, and so we created this like uh, just kind of separate text thread for pictures of Jay from mm-hmm. my family to post on. Cause like, I just don't, yeah. It's like posting a picture of him every now and then, but I don't want, cause there's this article I read that talked about like the trauma that kids experience, uh, around ages of like nine in particular mm. of realizing that their parents have been like po- disclosing everything about their life to everyone. You know, mm. like, uh, you're nine years old and you find out that there's pictures of you, um, you know, eating from mom's breasts all over the internet. And it's oh like, gosh, yeah. well, I wish I didn't have those pictures of me all over the internet, but you're nine years old. And right. even like the idea of like consent is being interesting. Like this mm. idea, everyone knows everything about me and I never had a say in the matter, especially once you kind of start hitting that eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 thing, when you're kind of starting that individuation process that yeah. can be pretty uh, disorienting for kids mm. and how this hyper document, especially like millennials like me, uh, who grew up, who are parenting with smartphones, this proclivity to just put your kids all over the internet all the time in that gap. And mm. so this, I like this idea of like private space and public space has been yeah. eroded. Um, Douglas Murray wrote the book Madness of Crowds, which I really appreciate. He's a British journalist. And one of the things he said was that like, even in our speaking, you know, before people who spoke to millions uh, were like edited or they were famous for some reason. Sure. But now there's like this, uh, this, this reality that we may be at any moment speaking to one person or to millions and the notion of private and public space has been eroded. Mm. And so now everybody's, like ability to communicate and talk and speak has become extremely performative. And sure. there, there has always been a sense in which adolescents perform, like they'd perform an identity, see how it worked out, yeah. act this way, act that way. Does this make people like me? Does this make people like you're, hmm. you know, it's so, a, so just to kind of trace our line of thinking. So one, one challenge that's emerging, especially with the younger generation really to privacy. Second one is this kind of performative reality. Yeah. Yeah, and especially performative in the sense that, like, I'm, uh, I don't really know who I am, and I don't really know how I want to be with people. I just know what gets likes and clicks. Mm. This, I think, I don't know if I mentioned in a previous episode, I was talking to my professor about this idea of like, doing it for the gram. Yeah. And how I was describing him like a lot of late, 
teens and early 20s people don't even know what they like. They just know what plays well on social media. Yeah. And so they'll plan vacations and they'll do stuff for the purpose of that doesn't look fun, but I know it will look like it will look fun. Hmm. Yeah. And so people aren't even totally sure what they like. They just know what's popular and they want to hmm. be a part of what's popular. They want to be part of uh, the team. And why is that especially, I mean, I can maybe fill in some gaps, but why is that especially damaging and difficult for developing human beings? A, a big part of it is the way that your mind is wiring when you're a teenager is there's like this process of um, separating or individuating or differentiating from your parents. And so this idea of like script following has always been part of it. This is one of my favorite things to say when I preach at high school camps is all of you think you're free thinkers by doing exactly what your parents did when they're in high school, believing they're free thinkers, <laughs> you know, you know, like yeah. your, your script, everyone's following yeah, a script. Sure. And so now just the scripts are reinforced by edited images and algorithms hmm. and they're just pushed on you even harder. And so the idea of like trying to be a person who stands alone, who stands for something, who has conviction and a spine is just exponentially harder when you're a teen because what you really want is you're desperate for uh, belonging and connection. Sure. And even if you're like when I was in high school, I was like an anti-script follower. Like if something was like what you're supposed to do to be cool in high school, I just did the opposite of that. And even that was just a way of... It's just a different script. It's a different script. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a script less people follow. But this sure. idea that you're not going to follow a script is is just silly. And especially in adolescence when you're learning to have adult relationships. And by adult relationships, I don't mean sexual ones. I mostly mean the ability to like have meaningful discussions about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or sure. whatever you want to talk about it. And to do that in a way where you're unable to read verbal cues yeah, because everything you've been seeing is like people making silly faces and posting snaps to each other. Yeah. So it's the trying to be a person who's able to be present to people is, is difficult. And a lot of it too, even has to do with the way that the algorithms program you and reinforce these echo chambers hmm. that the algorithms are not designed to challenge you, to form you, to shape you into a rounded person they're designed to keep you looking and watching. And so they're just going to post reinforcing things on a regular basis in a way that makes you want to keep looking. And sure. so you'll become overly confident in your views and opinions and beliefs, not because you've thought about things, but because you have this kind of false consensus effect. Yeah, everybody everybody agrees with me. Yeah, Everyone I know, it's like, well, yeah, you know a shrinking number of people. Yes. Uh, you know, in a shrinking you know, subset of information because of that dynamic. Yeah. And it's good for business and it, you get sold on believing that you have the corner on a worldview and a market. And so all of this, especially in this, like the socialization process and what it means to be a self and a person is you end up projecting an identity based on clicks, likes, scores, and retweets. And it gets falsely reinforced through this echo chamber effect. And it's just, destructive to your ability to be a non-anxious presence in the flesh with people. Hmm. When you had started to say earlier that that kind of social anxiety is just skyrocketing. Yes. And that seems like, okay, that just sounds like the fruit of that. And part of that is, and so here's a, here's a quote I want to read from this uh, South Korean article um, called education ministry for the formation of self identity in the information age. Part of what I found is there's a lot more research on this stuff in uh, South Korean and Chinese context because mm. they're a couple notches ahead of 
the West on in terms of digitized identities. Okay. But one of the things they talk about is how because self-identity is now formed through multiple worlds, both digital and real, what you end up happening is this dual constitution thing where you have yourself in the flesh and you have yourself uh, as projected, and it creates fragmented, unstable, immoral, and anonymous persons. And mm. by fragmented, they mean... So read that, read that list again. Fragmented unstable, immoral, and anonymous. And so those first two kind of go together. Fragmented and unstable has to do with this, uh, this reality that because I have different senses of myself in different places that are all projected, there's an instability there. Like Mm. there's an incongruity. Um, I know deep down that I'm a different person, different people, and it kills me inside. And if those worlds crossed, Mm -hmm. it would be very bad for me. Hmm. Right. So tons of Gen Z people who identify as LGBTQ have only come out online and not come out in person, Hmm. partly because you can find places online where whatever you say, you'll be validated. Hmm. And so if you go online and say all the stuff about yourself and you're validated, 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 and then you come in person and you say something about yourself and someone says, wait, help me understand. And you go, now you're not safe. I'm triggered. Hmm. Right. There's an instability there. Sure. And because at any point. I even relate to that fragmented part because it's like, you know, I. I'm on, I mean, I guess I'm an old man, right? So I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And uh, I don't post on any of those with a great deal of frequency, but I post very different things on on the different mediums, right? There's things I post on Twitter that I wouldn't post on Facebook because in a sense, I'm going like, I think my audience is a little bit different. Yeah. And so, and that's even different from, from Instagram. And so it's like, part of me goes, well, that's just good communication, Yes. Is you know your audience and you know who you're talking to and you know what is kind of okay to say where. And, but it also, I can see how, like, it is that fragmentation. Yeah. I mean, the question we have to ask is if someone who only ever knew me from Twitter and someone who only ever knew me from Instagram met, would they, and they went to talk about mm. Seth Trout, would they feel like they're talking about the same person? Hmm. Yeah. And so. And then if they met you in person. <laughs> yeah, if they met me in person, would they be like, that's the guy? Or, yeah. or would there be like a, hmm. you are not what I expected based on you're a lot shorter. That's yeah. what they, no, no. I do hear that. I have a, you're shorter than I expected. It's like, so I just speak like a tall person. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but, yeah. but so are there, um, cause I want to get into things parents can do to think through this before we do that. Are there any other kind of especially big, um, effects that social media is having on the developing generation? Yeah, one of the big ones has to do with the way that it creates these like parasocial relationships, meaning one directional relationships. Like mm. you have all these people who follow someone and they're not followed back, like the kind of influencer semi celebrity thing that there's this uh, idea of legitimacy and validation that comes from followers. And the way that creates like a substantial FOMO or fear of missing out, like this. Uh, now, like in the past, if you were not invited to something, you wouldn't know about it. Now you're not invited to it and you have to watch the pictures of the stuff that happened that you weren't invited to. Sure. And so like the social pain is way up and the way that it um, damages things uh, is, is pretty difficult. And so you have all these people that you're like quote friends with that you're not friends with and the difficulty of that. And there are like stories of people who met online and end up becoming friends in person. And so I don't want to minimize that. But if like things like remain this kind of like, we're projecting identities to each other so that we can keep feeling good about ourselves. Like the, the lack of 
honesty and congruity there mm. is a is a big problem. And even like the way what the data shows has to do with the way that Generation Z functions is they hang out with their friends less, they drink less alcohol, they have less sex. That's not because they fear the Lord more. It's just because they're more scared. Mm. Like there's a, this social anxiety yeah. has created this kind of, I'll call it an unholy celibacy. <laughs> you know, like the, yeah. what if I could, but I'm scared, so I'm not going to. Yeah. And they're, they go to parties less, they hang out less with their friends. And so like this book by lady named Jean Twenge, the name of the book was iGen. It basically talks about how social media has turned, and I'm not talking about every Gen Zer, but Gen Z as a whole compared to past generations are like the lamest generation we've seen. Mm. They work less, they um, study less, they have sex less, they drink alcohol, like they, they party less, everything that like would be considered historically, sociologically, from a secular terms. As yeah, like, we're not talking about what the Bible would describe as a good life. But yeah, yeah, what secular sociologists describe as like having a good time. Yeah, Gen Z does less of that, and it's not because they're reading their Bibles more and going to church more. Right, it's because they're doom scrolling more and sending blurry selfies to each other more. Yeah, and so again, that's not every. That's just the sure. trend, the sociological yeah. trend, and so that whole idea of isolation, having less fun, you know, anxiety is way up. Suicidality is way up. Depression mm. is way up. And there's basically not a single mental health indicator, even down to gender dysphoria. Mm. That's not worse for Gen Z years. Wow. And so this is true. When I, and I was seeing something recently, I think it was specifically studying loneliness, but it was kind of looking at, um, you know, just studies of loneliness over time and how right around, I think it was 2012, which is kind of around that time where, you know, um, sp smartphone use was kind of ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Loneliness just skyrockets. Yeah. Just launches. I mean, it kind of, it's, you know, it's muddling along. It's whatever a kind of historically normal rate is. And then smartphone adoption comes loneliness comes with it right and that's just one of what you're saying are well, many different things yeah all the data is like from 2007 2010 everything just ramps up like crazy yeah it's not to the point where we can say these all these sociological trends are causal but the strong correlation of uh high-speed internet and smartphone use and every negative mental health outcome yeah. is hard. There's nothing else really changed like that in 2007, 2009. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so let's, let's move into the parenting thing. You know, I've got, uh, I've got four kids four or now a 15 year old daughter. She's a sophomore, uh, 12 year old daughters in seventh grade. I've got some younger kids too. Um, I kind of feel like what I'm hearing. I mean, if I were to, <laughs> I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm imagining a lot of parents who are going, you know, I feel like my kids should have a phone cause I want them to be able to get a hold of me. And I'm kind of going, that doesn't sound worth all this other stuff. <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> like to, to like they could borrow a phone benefit. from someone uh, to, to you know, get a hold of me if they need to. But I, I guess what I'd say, and, and you're not, you haven't parented in this situation, but you've done a lot of research. And part of your research, I don't know if we've told everybody this, was you interviewed a number of therapists. Yeah. A significant number who work, especially with next generation uh, folks. And, uh, so yeah, what, what, what kind of encouragement, what advice, what coaching, what warnings would, would you, and maybe, um, maybe they would have kind of through you and through your research, what, what should parents kind of take away from this? 
the number one thing that parents have to do regarding smartphones, digital technology, is to become healthy users of it themselves. Hmm. Dang it. Why did you start there? Because every, <laughs> Isn't that kind of the answer on almost everything with parenting? Yeah. Also, if you just wanna, by the way. If you want to help raise sexually healthy kids, you got to do the work to become sexually healthy. If you want to raise healthy digital existing kids, you got to become. Sure. So the, the idea that like central to parenting and all discipleship and all formation is modeling. Yeah. And if we believe that we're going to help other people change without taking responsibility for the ways that we've been faithful, it begins there. And that modeling begins by just kind of recognizing our own attachment issues and addiction issues related to our phones. Like, do we get anxiety when we're right from our phone? Do we check our phone first thing in the morning to find out what happened that doesn't really affect our lives as soon as possible? Do we constantly go to our phone and allow it to interrupt dinner time and um, time with friends and family? And if so, we need to just honest inventory that and take note of that. And sometimes that might involve repenting to our spouse, to our kids, to our friends. Mm. I've been the type of person I don't want to be anymore. And so here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z with my phone so that I can be fully present with you when I'm with you. I'm committing to that. And even working through just this reality that as parents, our own, like, why do we want to post pictures of our kid? Like, if I want to get more pictures, like likes or something, I know I can post Jay about it because mm. people are going to like things about Jay sure. more than they like things about me. And so <laughs> if there's like an unhealthy sense in me, that's like, I haven't got a picture with a lot of likes lately. I'm going to post a cute picture of my son. You know, they're like just yeah. trying to be honest about what I'm trying to do and who I'm trying to appease and what mm. I'm trying to prove and why I feel the need to document stuff publicly that does not belong publicly. So it's my own internal shame, my own internal patterns of unhealthy use. And even there's a lady in our church named Li Xiaohuang who helps oversee the artificial intelligence program at Arizona State University. She's Mm. a PhD lady. And I footnote a couple of her, one of her papers a couple of times. She talked about how one of the reasons people form emotional attachments to electronic devices is because it reinforces presupposed senses of self. Mm. Meaning when I use this, all my narratives about myself are reinforced. And Mm. so these devices don't challenge us. They only reinforce our biases. And so just trying to recognize like, what are my views of myself that I'm trying to have reinforced right now that I don't want to have reinforced this way. I don't know if you're old enough to remember Seth, but there was an old commercial when I was a kid of uh, a dad who catches his kid with drugs Mm. and uh, busts into the room and says, I can't believe you did this and whatever. And the kid looks at him and says, I learned it from watching you. Yeah. You know, and it, uh, you know, it's one of those public service announcement things. But I, I think about this a lot when you're saying that is like going like our kids really are going like, well, hey, guess who we learned this from? Yeah. And and even this. So, so that's number one is we have to become healthy users. Number two is we have to deal with our own uh, internal blocks to handling our kids tantrums. OK, so when you begin to regulate your kids screen time, smartphone use, digital media use, whatever it is, they tend to react negatively. Mm-hmm. You know, time's right. up. Okay, yeah. thanks, Dad, for considering my mental health. But that's <laughs> right. not how it goes. It's yeah. just not how it goes. Right. A lot of the therapists I interviewed talked about how parents' inability to handle the storming and tantruming of their children ages 4 to 17 is the primary cause of them quitting on regulating kids device well and it's probably in a lot of cases i mean we've a lot of us have had moments as parents where it's like i can't handle anything right now i you're out of control here watch this yes you know so it's that's where it starts and then when it's like 
oh, now now it has to come off. Now it just so it's it sounds like that would be kind of a self reinforcing process. Oh yeah, and I I fully intend we're taking a fourteen hour flight to Europe in a couple months, and right. I fully intend to iPad this not out of J the whole time as much as possible. Yeah. The question is when he then wants that from then on, will I have the guts to tell him no, mm. or will I desperately need my child's approval, and will I be unable to handle? his yeah. rejection, his short-term rejection of me. And so, especially when you talk to mentors of students here and the parents that regulate and parents that don't regulate, uh, the outcomes are pretty substantial. And actually how much parents are willing to regulate and disappoint their kids as it relates to phones is a pretty good correlative of how just generally well-functioning they are as parents in general. Mm. And so that's step two would be we have to be, so we have, one, we have to regulate ourselves, two, we have to regulate our kids. And, we and their disappointment of us. And their disappointment of us. And we have to do the internal, because if we get all hyper-anxious and join them in tantruming about stuff, <laughs> it's not actually going to be sure. productive. And so trying to work process through, why do I desperately need my 14-year-old's approval? Yeah. And it's not like I want everybody's approval. The question is, at what cost am I willing to get it? Right. Because I could get anybody's approval. I just have to compromise all my values and my sense of self, right? So right. Sure. There, we ha there has to be willing to disappoint, and there has to be willing to say no, and there has to be a way to do that. The third thing I'd say um, that came out in interviews and research is there has to be, like, parent cohort support. Hmm. Like, finding other parents who are similarly concerned about what this stuff is doing to their adolescence developing brain and to do wisdom, best practice sharing and swapping. Hmm. Like there's a, there's this website called wait till eighth. Yeah. Which is, yeah, that was very influential for Molly and I in processing our decisions about this stuff. Yes. A lot of the, like uh, one of the neuroscientists interviewed and one of the therapists interviewed both kind of reference like 14 as like a rule of thumb. Your kids should not have a smartphone or social media until 14. And they had developmental reasons for like the state of the, the way the cortexes are developing and the ability to have a sense of self and how if you do social media and smartphones before the age of 14, it actually is like, so like if you want a place to start, I think most parents should say not till 14, which is about eighth grade, I think. And so the whole like point of wait till eighth is there's both like wisdom and insight and also like a, find other parents who are also trying to do this. Sure. So when you're 12 year old or 13 year old, it's like, oh everybody my, has one. Everybody has one. Yeah. And you can say like, not everybody because Billy also doesn't have one. How about you and Billy go play sports outside and sure. get sweaty and, yeah. and do stuff. And in just the reality that like nowadays you go to middle school and kids just are on their smartphones looking at porn at lunch. Yeah. And so being able to parent through that is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And, and there is, you are being excluded from, what your friends are doing yeah. you are so validating that loss like yeah all your friends look at porn on their phones at lunch and you're not a part of that instead of just being like well you shouldn't want to do that anyway just being <laughs> like there is a sense of sure. not being a part of what things are doing that is hard however that's not something that you really want to be doing anyway even though i know you do want to belong to the group and yeah. that that's a, not necessarily a bad well thing. it's it's funny with our with our seventh grader you know she doesn't have a she doesn't have a smartphone um but her friends that do have my wife's number and they'll text, you know, and so Molly is, you know, Caitlin through Molly is like part of this, you know, text thread uh, chat group, you know, and there's times where Molly will like pick up her phone and there's like literally 250 texts. Yeah. And they're like, Hey, yo, sup? Nothing. 
It's just like, and sometimes Molly will just go, hey, Caitlin, why don't you look at what you're missing out on? Exactly. And hand it to her. And it's like, you know, and it's, there are moments where she feels like, oh, something important happened. And it was more than that. But a lot of times it really is like, hey, here's 200 messages of not a lot. Yeah. Nassim Taleb, who's one of my favorite economists slash Twitter personalities, who's, uh, you know, would not be an elder at this church. I'll just say that. <laughs> but he, he talks about um, the difference between signal and noise, mm. especially in media use. He basically reads no media besides like he reads one newspaper once a month. And he seems to not be missing out on much. Yeah. And because he talks about the vast majority of all communication is not signal, it's just noise. And just realizing that most of the time when people give up social media or give up some form of communication, when you realize what you missed out on, you're like, oh, yeah, those overpromise, underdeliver type stuff. Well, I remember reading Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, which was a real helpful book on some of this stuff. And one of the things he said, and this just challenged me as an adult, was to go, you say, I can't live without this. Well, what if you had to pay per minute? Yes. What if you, what if you had to pay a, a, you know, some 99 cents a minute to use Facebook? Would you go like, man, I got to have this? Yeah. You'd probably go, eh, I don't need it as much. Maybe I don't need it as, at all. And that kind of shows you where the real value is. Yeah. So going back to the step three, I'd say it was be like covenanting or cohorting or connecting with other parents and swapping best practices mm. because so much of what needs to happen is just collective wisdom because the script now for parenting has been shaped by Silicon Valley and just trying to acknowledge that reality that people make money off your kids every time you don't have the spine to say no to them. Mm. And so you're just complicit in reinforcing the algorithmic money-making machine when you refuse to parent your kids through some of this stuff. Yeah. So, so that's the third one. The fourth one is trying to like creatively invest in having a good time with your kids. Mm. Yeah. Like the research shows like, so this is Jean Twenge quote. She said, the research could not be clear. Teens who spend more time on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy. And those who spend more time on non-screen activities are more likely to be happy. <laughs> so there's, it's just wow. every research study up and down. It's like, embodied physical having a good time familial connection mm. is the recipe for happy kids mm. and doom scrolling locked in the room stuff is not the function of that now there are exceptions there always are exceptions sure you know but one of the problems in american society is we all believe that we are the exception sure you know i'm going to be the one who right. doesn't fit the box and so i think this is like probably takes the most parenting energy mm. is this we're going to go and find non-screen stuff to do together mm. in the house, out of the house, somewhere, and just finding ha familial habits that are, whether it's swimming or trampolining, or this is also might just be some of my dad as a coach background. It's like go and find something to do. The endorphins that come with expending bodily energy are way more powerful predictors of mm. healthy mental outcomes than any type of screen use at all. Yeah, you know, Molly and I have talked about this as we kind of just grieve as we watch so many young people um, dealing with all the different kinds of things you've been talking about and kind of going like, man, some of these kids just need, they need like to play a sport or like uh, to have a hobby or, you know, do something physically with their bodies to just get moving and get doing stuff. And, you know, that whole like, uh, I remember when I was a kid, there was a sense of like, 
we got to keep kids busy so they don't get into trouble. And it's like, that's kind of gone away. And it's like, maybe there's still a lot of wisdom to that. Yeah, they might you not know? be breaking the law because right. they're just scrolling. But it, but they but are kind of, you know, withdrawing and kind of enveloping themselves um, and becoming, yeah, anyway, that's a, that seemed, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, so that that's the big fourth one. And I would say uh, really the, the fifth one is being immersed in the life of the church hmm. all over the place. Because right now the church is one of the very few places is that that tells kids that their bodies are good mm. and their bodies tell them who they are and that there's like the creational dignity and value of everybody uh, because the algorithms, the marketing machines, they're designed to foster unhappiness so you spend more money. And you know, secular society wants you to uh, commit sins of the high hand against the Lord all the time and say so your body does not tell you what it's for. Mm. And they like trying to continue to separate, you know, sex from procreation and continuing to separate the person from the family and separate the family from the church and separate the church from society. And so there is a unique message to the incarnation of Jesus that Jesus took on flesh and he had a body just like yours Hmm. and he, he worked through it. Yeah. Like you, like there's a, there's a hopefulness in the incarnation Mm -hmm. that you can inhabit a body faithfully and, like live a good life mm. in your body without medicating it through serotonin clicks, likes and things like that. Because so much of what happens is we have been sinned against. And so in many ways we're traumatized or we've sinned. And so we have guilt and shame. So both of those are be negative emotions and people's inability to handle their negative emotions leads them to get out of their bodies and onto their phones and to go and be somewhere else. And mm. so it's excarnational. Like there's this direction to if I have emotional pain, either from loneliness or sin or shame or having been sinned against and traumatized, rather than doing the work of healing, I'm going to scroll through Instagram or TikTok and be entertained by these 10 to 15 second clips of ha 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 so that I don't have to feel my negative feelings. Whereas Mm. the church, you have Jesus entering into painful society and being present in a body and Mm. feeling the pain of those around him and saying, you can lean into this rather than lean out of it, that you can incarnate rather than excarnate. And so there's a hopefulness to the gospel message that says healing in the body is possible and faithfulness in the body is possible. And rather than escaping and medicating, you know, the opioid crisis is well documented. The serotonin crisis from social media is the next thing is just like we form a debt, like addictions to, alcohol and opioids, Mm -hmm. we form addictions to our phones and both things bypass the very healing process necessary to Mm -hmm. work through the emotional pain that's underneath it. And so healthy life in the church. Mm. And I don't mean watching church online as a family, right? I mean, being a part of a local church and connected to it where you're going to have people who see you, know you, your, Mm -hmm. your quirks, your social anxiety, and are going to love you through it and connect with you through it is, is really a vital part of raising healthy adolescents, especially in this day and age. Yeah, that's really good. Well, I want to offer uh, one other encouragement, a couple of uh, tools or resources. And then I have one more question for you on the parenting side that I have to think a lot of folks listening would be asking. So my encouragement uh, for those of you parents listening is, um, you know, when Seth talked about that kind of wait till eighth idea or whatever it is, you know, wait till this, this stage of development, my encouragement to you would be, and then don't open the floodgates all at once. Um, you know, if you're going to give your kid a phone, give him a phone, but 
disable a bunch of stuff on it. Don't let them have social media right away. Don't let them have YouTube right away. Don't let them have all of those things. You know, let them have the texting app. Let them have the phone. Let them have the maps. Let them have the weather. You know, maybe some of those things. But but allow them to, like, demonstrate some faithfulness and then, you know, increase a little bit at once. Um, and we'll come back to why I think that, that matters in a moment. A couple of tools I would recommend. One is a, a an app called RPACT, O-U-R. P-A-C-T, Our Pact. And it's been a great app that, that we've been using in our family. It was recommended by some other parents as well. And there's just, what you can do is kind of regulate when the phone's on, when it's off, um, what apps you can and can't use at different times. Um, and what I really like about it is, you know, there's ways that, I mean, kids are smart. They get, figure out how to get around screen time and some of the other things. Um, the, the other thing I love with our pact is when an app is blocked, it literally just disappears from the phone. It's yeah. not like kids can press it and then kind of, you know, password their way in. So that's a really great resource. And then one, one other app just on yeah. recommending apps that a, a couple of therapists talked to recommend was the app called Bark. Hmm. B-A-R-K? B-A-R-K. I don't know anything about it because my son's one and a half. <laughs> but but multiple therapists it. recommended the Bark app in the way that it monitors especially hypersexualized content. Mm. Yeah, well, and I was going to recommend an app called Canopy, which is, I think, a very good filtering app for uh, pornography. It, uh, it doesn't necessarily filter out all inappropriate images, uh, but it definitely filters out explicit um, images and those sorts of things. Uh, so those are a couple apps. Here, here's the question I had uh, for you, Seth, and I'm wondering what you'd say based off, especially the conversations you've had, I can imagine a lot of parents going like, well, this would have been great to hear a couple of years ago. Yeah. But it's too late now. I did open the floodgates. The toothpaste is out of the tube. I I don't know how I'm going to get it back. You know, uh, what do I do now? Right. I, and and it's, it's interesting to me, especially for those of you young, younger parents listening. I feel like as I talk, you know, I'm 41 as I talk to parents around my age with kids around my kids' ages, the number one regret I'm hearing right now is we gave our kids too much too fast when it came yeah. to uh, phones, iPads, screens, all that sort of stuff. But, but once you're there, now what? Yeah. the I asked therapists this question too. And one of the recurring things they said was it's never too late to regulate. Ha <laughs> ha. It rhymes even. They didn't say that rhyming and cool. Okay. I, I did that. Okay. Yeah. Just credit where credit's due. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I can rhyme. But it's never too late. That's what they would say. It's never too late. You have to start now. If you're, you might be listening to this being like, wow, I've been letting my kid drink alcohol to help them with their social anxiety before they go to school. It's like, okay, well, now that you know that's a bad idea, stop. Like you right. can, yeah. you can now take steps and it will be hard. For them to have to learn how to go to school without a buzz, if that's like what they've been relying on to manage their social anxiety. Like there's, they may have to go see a therapist. They may have to learn some tools. You may have to uh, do a lot of work to regain a measure of sobriety. But if you know that what you're doing is hurting your kids or what you're not doing in particular is hurting your kids, mm. you can right now take steps, like ask for coaching. Like we have, we have parent coaches here at Gateway who would love to help. Like you may not go cold turkey next week and just, yeah. you know, take a sledgehammer to it, but beginning to pull back. And the thing that I would say is the most helpful thing that my dad ever did to me when he was parenting me was he would repent to me mm. and say, I'm sorry that this, that I did this, mm. I should have done that. And now I'm trying to correct what I did wrong. And so if you need to tell your kids, I gave you too much too fast. I, 
I gave you adult responsibility when you are not an, yet an adult. Your brain's not even fully developed, and I treated you like someone with a fully developed brain. That's on me. That's not on you. Yeah. This is going to be hard for you. You're going to be frustrated with me, and that's on me. That's not on you. So I think that the way of responsibility is almost always the best way. Mm. Just to right now begin to take responsibility and to make new trajectories. And even if the deregu- the regulation process when you've been deregulated is painful, which it probably will be, uh, trying to process through the I don't just want my kid's approval, but I'm trying to create a pattern of even my child is an adult, mm-hmm. I want them to have this to look back on and say, when my parents came to the knowledge that they had done the wrong thing, they took responsibility and tried to pivot. Yeah, And even if you pivot incorrectly, you know, it, the ship is not out to sea till it's out to sea. Yeah. And there's well, a and lot, I can imagine there's a lot a parent parenting. That, I can imagine a parent that might be helped too by saying, you know, let's do this together. Yeah. yeah you know, because probably the dysregulation in a kid also probably represents some unhealthy patterns of use for an adult and to go like, hey, you know what? I'm not just going to you kind of make you suffer for this, but we're going to actually kind of and there, learn and, together. And there's a taste the fruit thing in this. Yeah. I've talked to a couple of pastors on our staff who, for some reason or another, various reasons, had their kids totally off all social media for 30, 90 days. And being able to talk to their kids and say, like, have you felt better or worse since this mm. happened? Yeah. Have you felt more connected or less connected to who you were, to the Lord, to your own body, to your own emotions? Have you felt more reactive, less reactive? Have you felt more anxious, less anxious? Mm. And mostly the kids all go like, well, I have felt less anxious. I have felt more present. Yeah. And it's kind of like a, so you've experienced the fruit of this. So now this isn't just dad imposing limits. Right. This is us saying we want to be healthy together. And I'm taking the lead on it because I'm the parent. Right. But you're not just a victim in dad's tech health adventure. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Well, man, this has been really helpful. And like you said, uh, we do have uh, resources, I think in particular of Robin Howie, who uh, is leading a lot of our parenting and mentoring, coaching and stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, folks can get in touch with her if they want to kind of connect more and figure out, okay, what are some next steps I could take? Uh, But man, I I appreciate your work. I appreciate you sharing this with us. And uh, I don't know exactly what we'll talk about next time, but I'll look forward to it. Yeah. And if, if you weren't convinced on how bad this stuff is, my dissertation has about 40 pages of how bad this stuff is. (laughs) And we just didn't want to read that to you, but there's a lot of data on this is not, loving to subject yourself or your children to this. Yeah. Well, with that, I guess we should close by saying, be careful out there. Silicon uh, Valley is coming for you. That's right. Your mind and your money. There you go. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on King and Culture. See you later. (laughs) 